Well, hey everyone, it's Jason here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today's episode is our final one of 2020, and we wanted to end this year with a compilation of some of our best moments. Over the last year, we had just over 40 guests on the podcast. About half of them are pastors from across Canada, and the rest are leaders and pastors from all over the world. And there were just so many inspiring and thought-provoking moments. And so we pulled some of our favorite ones together and smashed it into one episode. You can consider it the Cliff Notes of the 2020 Church Leaders Podcast series. And so we hope that all this bite-sized content encourages and serves you well. Now, before we jump into those clips, I do want to thank some people. First, I want to thank the different organizations who generously partnered with us at CCL. And here's the deal. All of this stuff does cost money. There's a huge team that goes into it. And this is only possible because there are organizations and ministries in Canada who love you and want to serve you. And so I want to thank Alpha Canada, Briarcrest College and Seminary, and Compassion Canada for helping make this podcast possible this year. Each of these organizations is so for the local church and is so for you. We're floored by their generosity and hugely grateful. And one of the ways that you can thank them is by looking into their work. Each of these organizations are actively looking for ways to build and serve the church. And so check out the work of Alpha Canada, Briarcrest, Compassion, their incredible organizations and the people that work for them. We love them and appreciate them a ton. I also want to thank a few key people who jumped on here to help host and facilitate some of the interviews. Thank you to Brent Ingersoll, Kim Moran, and Shayla Visser for giving your time and kindly offering your voice on this podcast. I want to thank all of our guests. Every time a guest says yes, it's signing up for two or three hours of work, and almost all these guests are interesting because they've got so many meaningful things going on. So I'm so grateful to all of our guests for saying yes. I want to thank the team that preps and organizes and edits and shares these episodes each week. Week. And lastly, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in week to week and for spreading the word and giving us feedback and ideas for joining us on the webinar and telling your friends about it. We love the engagement we've seen from you and we're so glad that this podcast serves you in some way. It's an honor for us to do it. So thank you for being part of it. Okay, now today's episode is going to move fast, and so I'm going to hand it over to our friend Alicia Chinchilla, who's part of the team at Village Church in Calgary, and she's going to walk you through it. Thanks, Jason. Okay, so we're going to go way back to the beginning of the year. Here is a clip from our interview with Danielle Strickland. I heard you recently chat about this idea of disruption and disruption seems like one of the COVID buzzwords like pivot or whatever it is, but I heard you talk about disruption and just the importance of disruption for the sake of growth and change. And I just wanted to start there by just unpacking sort of why you feel like disruption is something that we shouldn't like just hope passes, but actually maybe embrace. Yeah, I'll just throw it to you. I'd love to hear a bit more about what you meant by that. Yeah, so Catherine Booth, who co-founded the Salvation Army, uh, said that there is no changing the future without disrupting the present. And uh, she's right, you know, Mm. disruption is, you know, spiritual code for awakening. Um, And I think that we've always, we often, and I think this is probably because of our own addictions to control, you know, like we want to, we want to be in charge. We view disruption through the lens of fear and it's a threat, it's a threat to what we can control, of course. But if you view disruption through the lens of faith, it becomes an invitation. Hmm. So I think that, you know, no matter the disruption, there is an invitation in it if you can 
ask God to show you what it is that he's trying to invite you into. Uh, and, you know, again, I, I, I wrote a book called A Beautiful Mess uh, and really around this idea of how we just said anything that's chaotic is the enemy mm. and order is a friend. And I, I, I think actually there is a divine order that is a deep friend. Of course, that's the creation account. But God's order, divine order is so much different than our order. Hmm. And so it's about relinquishing a lot of the control and the need for us to, to figure out and to know what's going on and to surrender that to God, who actually does have a divine order that he's inviting us to find. And in the original creation account, of course, it says the spirit hovered over the chaos and then spoke life out of it. So again, this idea that that chaotic void, which is both uh, uh, empty, you know, this feeling of like, there's nothing here. Uh, which I think some people can relate to. And it's also the presence of this foreboding, like this is going bad. So it's both. Mm. Uh, it's the absence of any kind of meaning, but it's also this like presence of like fear. In that spot, that chaotic place, the spirit of God was hovering, mm. just waiting to create. And I think that's the image I'd like to tell people, like in those places where either you're, you've got nothing <laughs> or there's this foreboding sense of like, I'm you know, darkness and depth and deep, uh, right there is where the spirit of God is. And we've mm. been trained our whole lives to avoid those places, uh, because they're scary and they're out of our control, but maybe just maybe if we could ask God to help us, we could hover there too with the Holy spirit and see what he might want to create. Up next, we have John Mark Comer in Portland, Oregon. The best gift you give the people you lead is your transforming self. Your transforming self. Yeah. That's a weird, that's weird grammar. But we're never transformed. It's not like, hey, mm. go do this thing. Go through Ruth Levy Barton's, you know, to your program, which is amazing. And I highly recommend. And then you are transformed. And now lead at, no, it's you're transforming and always transforming. You're never there. It's a theology of journey, not destination. And every year forward, the dream is that we become more free and more at ease in our own body and more full of genuine agape self-giving love and more at peace mm. and more than non-anxious presence and more joyful more just full of trinitarian inner life and delight year over year over year and i really think that's the best gift you know willard used to say the main thing that god gets out of your life and the main thing that you get out of your life is the person you become and um, I think you could say the same thing. The main thing that your church or the people you lead get out of your life is the person you become. It's not the consumables of ministry. It's not your teaching or your sermons or your strategy or your events or your conferences or your buildings or your programs. That's all good stuff. I'm not down on any of that. I give a lot of time to some of that. But the main thing that those are just conduits for who God is making you to be to come through you know that so funny um, I'm a charismatic but I take issue with the phrase spiritual gift I think it's really bad language that's unbiblical that's results that comes from um, what I think most scholars would agree is a not not a good translation of Paul's language in Corinthians most of the time and like the classic spiritual gift passages if you actually read them carefully, they don't use the language of spiritual gifts. Romans 12 writes about gifts, but there's no adjective spiritual. Um, Corinthians 12 writes about spirituals, and, and Corinthians 14, it's pneumaticos in Greek. It's most literally spirituals or spiritual things, but the word gifts is not there. The one time that spiritual and gift are used together by Paul 
are in Romans 1, where he calls himself the spiritual gift. He says, I long to see you that I may impart a spiritual gift to you. And he means himself. He means like, I want to come to you and I want the spirit of God to, to, to gift something to you through me. And that's such a, you know, that sounds egotistical, but I think it's actually humility. It's saying mm. that what we have to give is just the, the, the small fraction of Jesus that we get to mirror out through our personhood, you know? So that's a long mm. way of saying, I think character and leadership matters. I think just time and, and quiet prayer with Jesus and who we become matter 10,000 times more than anything else in leadership. We're moving back up north to hear from a regular voice on the podcast. Here's Daryl Johnson. As I was reflecting on the cave, the jail, and Patmos, in all in those three cases, David, Paul, and John discover their true location in the universe. In the cave, the Psalms from the cave all refer to God as his rock, God as my refuge. God as my habitation. The letters from jail, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all are saturated with in Christ language. Paul knows that his true location in the universe is in Christ. Not in, his, not in a pulpit, not in a sanctuary, not in those places where we think our identity is, but it's in Christ. And then John, of course, discovers that his true dwelling place is in the heavenly places in Christ. So I'd be praying for you, my sisters and brothers, that together we'll discover in this forced isolation in these rooms that we actually dwell in a person. Yeah. We live and move and have our very being in the triune God of grace. Um, and then that's what I want to shepherd our people into that they might know that's where they live up next we're hearing from pete hughes at kxc in london england back to that thomas merton quote then our lives are shaped by the end we live for one of the things that breaks my heart is not just outside the church but inside the church people don't understand the end of the story so the kind of stereotype of like, we die, we leave our bodies behind, we ascend to some sort of disembodied bliss where we ride around on clouds and drink Red Bull and sing Here I Am to Worship. Like, I mean, it's it's fun and the royalties will help my brother. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's basically not the, the story of the New Testament. It's Greek philosophy. It's been heavily influenced by Plato and, and the dualistic thinking that was present in Greek philosophy that the material world is bad and that the goal, redemption or salvation, is escaping the material world to the immaterial, the, the spiritual world. And Greek philosophy infiltrated the church and robbed us of the glorious end of our story, which isn't us, you know, leaving this world. It's God coming down and making mm. his home amongst us um and in revelation 21 and 22 this is the climax of the whole story the ending of the new testament is is the apostle john who's writing it down says look as i see god making his dwelling place suddenly there's no death and there's no grief and there's no crying and there's no pain the former things in other words all of the pain and the brokenness of the world you know that that that's left behind and then god sits down as i said before says behold i'm making all things new 
And in the Greek language, you've got two words for new. You've got neos, which means brand new, and you've got kainos, which is something old that's restored to its former glory. And when God says, behold, I'll make all things new, the word kainos is used. In other words, I'm going to restore everything to how it was in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, where there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering, humanity, fully alive, in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, and in relationship with created order. And, and our story is a restoration of what began in the very beginning. Um, so if that's the end of our story and the end we're living for, then that story has everything to say about banking and the fashion industry and the music industry and the realm of education and the charity sector and family life. And I, I just got frustrated with hmm. like a church message, which was more about church growth and about the renewal of all created order. I got bored by people talking about your job as a banker is to tell other bankers about Jesus. Like, I want to say, like, yes, proclaim the gospel wherever you can. But your role as a banker is more than just telling other bankers about Jesus. It's the renewal of the banking industry. It's fighting cycles that sort of promote greed and finding a better way to manage money. And those in education, it's not just about getting grades and rating people. It's about developing children that can flourish and grow in wisdom. And, you know, fashion isn't just about exploiting people. It's, it's about beauty and promoting beauty and dot, dot, dot. And I kind of felt like the church wasn't in these conversations mm. about, you know, seeing beauty break out. I felt like if you wanted to be in that conversation, you'd go to Ted. And it's like, oh, no, no, but we've got, we've got a narrative that if we live in, we'll live out. And that narrative is about the renewal of all things. We should be at the forefront of those conversations. Here we have Aaron White of 24-7 Prayer Canada. People often describe the downtown east side in ways that I don't like um, because it is our home. It's our neighborhood. And uh, it's a place where I have seen the the gospel known and lived uh, and and loved more than any other place I've ever been. Um, mm. the, the surface, and it goes deep too, uh, realities of the downtown east side is, is significant pain, um, mm. homelessness, addiction, poverty, um, the sex trafficking, um, all that stuff is real. It's, it's true. Um, you know, it's it's called the the poorest postal code in Canada. Sometimes North America. It has the highest uh, intravenous drug use rate in the Western world, and these kind of things. Um, you know, from the '80s on, there's been a massive housing crisis and mental health crisis mm -hmm. and drug crisis, uh, and all these things coming together to form a very unique community, but one where Jesus is. So when we first came to the downtown east side, as many people do, we thought, well, we're going to come and bring Jesus here. And we're somewhat, you know, not discouraged, but surprised to find that Jesus was already here. People <laughs> already knew him. Turns so out. Like, oh, not, yeah, now what are we going to do? Um, but it turns out to be a phenomenal place to meet Jesus and to go mm -hmm. deeper with Jesus. And so that's why we've stayed. And uh, so we just, you know, seek to love our, our neighbors, very eclectic and unique and beautiful neighbors yeah. in that way. And when people come to visit now, I just give them tours of beauty. I just say where the mm. beauty is in this neighborhood. Coming up next is Sydney Muisio from Compassion International. The ministry to children and youth is something that I truly, truly believe is perhaps the most strategic ministry any church can be involved yeah, into. As a matter of fact, the, the, the organizations like uh, the UN and UNICEF, 
have said that any nation investing in children, particularly, is making one of the most strategic uh, investments. I think when it comes to the church, children and youth really are not just um, significant in our todays, but they represent the future of our faith and they represent the future of our nations and they represent the future of our families. So to make an investment in children and youth is to be in the most strategic uh, way uh, of doing ministry that you can actually get involved in. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago going to a church in one of the European countries and finding that the average age was around 67. And I asked the members of that church, what happens uh, when the last of them dies? And then they say the church dies. And said, where are the children? And they didn't have any ministry to children. And that was just one more example of what happens to a church um, when they turn their eyes from investing and passing on the faith uh, to the next generation. So it is really, really strategic. And of course, working with the poor, you couldn't do anything that is closer to God's heart than to respond yeah. to the needs of, 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 of the poor. Our scripture uh, is absolutely clear about our calling to serve that neighbor that is poor. Um, and scripture is absolutely clear that children are part of the calling we have, uh, we have received. The promise of the Holy Spirit is to us and to our children. And when they're poor and, 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 and they're young, they are the most vulnerable. They are always at the receiving end of everything that's going on because they don't have a voice. So to speak up for those that cannot speak for themselves and to invest in those that represent the future of the families, the future of the churches, the future of the nations, what could be more strategic than that calling? Here's Josh Kelsey from beautiful New York City. And then the other thing I'd say is you need to have, yes, a compelling vision, but a really strong culture. Culture is what upholds and also achieves the vision. So our saying in our churches and amongst our team is we talk about culture four times as much as we talk about vision. Hmm. You know, it's, you know, if you take the analogy of a family going on a, a, car, a long car ride to, you know, some holiday destination, yeah, there's definitely a lot of talk about, oh, we're going to Disney World, we're, this is where we're going, or we're going to the beach holiday, whatever it is. But eventually that's going to be not enough to mm. sustain uh, the interest in the car because then it becomes actually a negative. Like, when are we there? You know, when are we going to get there? And actually the vision can become a burden in the church. But if you then create a culture of friend friendship and relationship and um, what we say is culture is what happens when the leader's not in the room. Hmm. Um, culture, culture are the automatics. Um, so what we do without having to be followed up, that's, that's our culture. And that's for better or for worse. Correct. Correct. So this is a good time to reassess that. Like what are things that are happening automatically that, that are you know, going on because of COVID-19? That's our culture. And think things are going to rise to the surface, whatever it is, good, bad, or ugly, we have to, as leaders, 
respond to that rather than place blame on people and go, okay, I've, I've either not seen that or haven't developed that or haven't um, sown something else. And so therefore that's my culture. Okay. How do I bring it back to a kingdom culture or how do I uh, reform or regenerate that into kingdom culture? And I think that's what's, you know, back to the original thought, that's what's attractive to the young, a young leader is the culture. They love being a part of something that's risk-taking and Mm. adventurous and uh, focused on loving people and friendship and serving, you know, all all the, all the values. So that's, that's, I think not, that's not the whole picture, but those two things are really important. Up next is Kim Moran from Abbotsford, British Columbia. Can you name the seven like values that you guys have is I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think it's helpful if we'll get a window into the, the culture <laughs> you're trying to create at APA. Yep. Uh, I should know them. So it's just a matter of whether my brain is working today or not. But um, the first one is diversity over division. And so we say like, we want to be a church of diverse people. We might not always agree on anything, everything. We might have different preferences and styles and come from different backgrounds, but we're never going to let ourselves be divided. So diversity over division, great over good. Um, We never want to just be okay with the status quo. And we always say that God gave us his best and he deserves our best. And that's not a statement of perfection. It's really about like, we don't want to be the people who are just like, where's the line of like how we can get into heaven? And let's just make sure that we're like crossing that line. It's like, no, we want to like give God our very best and be like all in uh, and everything we do. And so, I mean, obviously that trickles down into the way that we do everything as a church, but I think like mostly for our personal walk with God. Um, Servants over stars Mm. is the third one. And so we say like, you might be the most talented person in the world, but if you're not in it to bring glory to God and you're trying to bring glory to yourself, then we're just like not really interested in uh, what you have to offer. And so we always tell people like, you are not the person with the spotlight on you. You are working the spotlight to try and shine light on Jesus. And so if you're willing to be behind the scenes and shine light on him, um, that's how you'll get promoted here. So we say we promote servants over stars, cooperation over competition. And so uh, we all like as a staff and as a team, we work together with other churches in our city. We've always said that we'll work together with other small businesses. We work together with overseas partnerships. We work together. We don't ever want to feel like we're in competition because mm. we have an enemy and like, that's the devil. Like we don't need to be in, we don't, our enemy is not other churches. Our enemy is not other people who are trying to advance the kingdom of God. So cooperation over competition, um, extraordinary over expected. And so we always say that we believe that God will do the extraordinary and not just the things that we expect him to do. Um, but we always say we plan for extraordinary over expected. So if we're going to pray, like, Hmm. God, grow our church, then we need to actually put things in place and believe that that's going to happen. And so that comes back to for Clark and I, when we were youth pastoring, we were like, God, grow our youth group, God, grow our youth group. And then a drug dealer got saved is like this crazy story, Uh, invited a whole bunch of his friends and our youth group exploded like by 150 people in like a couple weeks and we didn't have any leaders. And Mm. we like, we just couldn't maintain the growth. And we're like, man, I never want that to happen again where I'm asking God to do something and then he does it and I'm not prepared for it. So extraordinary over expected. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm cheating. Um, restoration over rejection. Uh, so we say we promise restoration over rejection. And so our like personal value as a church is that uh, we're not going to ever like everyone will always have a place and opportunity to find restoration here, regardless of the background of their 
criminal history uh, of whatever it is that's gone on. Like we are not the church that is um, not going to accept someone based on their lifestyle or their history or whatever. So we promise restoration over, or over, um, we promise restoration over rejection because we really like want people to experience that restoration in church. And the last one is, I'm going to cheat again victors over victims. And so mm. we say to people like we don't, we realize that hard things happen and difficulty um we go through difficult seasons in our lives um but we are on the winning team. Like mm. in the end even though things may be hard here in this life we realize that God gets the final say over good and evil. And so we uh it's victors over victims and that comes through I think a lot in our worship but also the like posture and the mindset that we bring hope and we bring life and we bring joy and we bring peace to things uh, we're not gonna let our circumstances define us and so a lot of these are like very come from like personal experiences for us but also history of what our church has been through um, mm. I love that as a framework for trying to figure out the values of a church mm -hmm. is that sort of intersection between like taking the time to understand the story of the church and what's in it's like DNA yeah. Even historical DNA, and maybe there's a spiritual dynamic there, but then also who you are as leaders, and there has to be that intersection. It has and to be, yeah. When I hear the values that you guys outline, it just it makes sense of those two converging pieces so well. Coming up, we have one of our favorite moments with Michael McDonald from the Bible Project team. People actually are okay with you talking about your faith as long as you're not trying to convince them that that that's what they need to do or be a mm. part of. And, and that's where I think the shift is, is I actually don't need to convince anybody. If I'm doing a good job of being, I mean, leaders are listeners, in my opinion. So if I'm mm. trying to be a good job of a leader and I show up as a listener, I, I've never had in those type of authentic moments, somebody go, dude, I don't want to hear about your Christianity. Because it's not coming, hopefully, from a place of like, I need to tell you something so that you get better. I need to tell you something mm. so you get, and, and I know that's controversial probably in the Christian world because they're like, well, we do have something that's going to make it better, but... I, I think that that's not what draws people in. The mm. same way that if somebody, if a, if a Muslim or a Buddhist was sitting down with you, Jason, it's not going to be very attractive if they just are like, okay, I need to convince you why you need to become a Muslim. And let me tell you all these things around that. That's not convincing. But when I meet a Muslim who's like the best father that I've ever seen and is literally taking every penny that he has that he's made in his business and starting a hospital in Saran and he's caring for the sick and the orphan and when when refugees come in they're open arms I start going there's something about your faith that is really amazing and beautiful and I want to mm. learn more about it I'm drawn to that like I'll be honest mm. I've had moments of like you know I trust in my faith in Jesus but like there's moments where I'm just like I actually really want to know what's making that guy tick because yeah. he is one of the people that looks like Jesus more than anybody I've ever met and so mm -hmm. I need to I want to I want to learn about that and so that draws people in and I think it would draw people in here in Portland and in Vancouver if if we lived that out and and spent a lot of time listening and then I think we'd have a lot of freedom to talk about our faith because they wouldn't be threatened we're heading back to London, England to hear from Al Gordon of Hackney Church. The power of imagination. And this is in a sense, um, you know, you can, you, can, um, you can outsource the first two, but the leader's job is to imagine a future that the Spirit of God wants to create yeah. and articulate it. And um, by the way, it's not the future that you want to create or I want to create. It's yeah. God, what are you doing that, I can dream, you know, it's 
biblical joel peter pentecost young men with dream dreams you know it's it's our job is our call as as leaders who want to serve the church is to allow ourselves to be available to god's dreaming and imagining and reimagining um so for me that means um not being afraid to um to, to sort of you know dream the crazy dreams right, right. and not to see the limits that people would put on you denominations would put on you um wounds would drag you down with um fear of people you know um uh don't be don't be afraid you know peter wasn't afraid when he got out of the boat he he was imagining he could walk on water and of course you know he can yeah. and so i think um the power of the dream and the power of a vision yeah. um and allowing ourselves as leaders to dream heaven's dream right. i mean goodness me when did we all get so busy that we stopped imagining right you know um and and finding time and space to allow yourself so my biggest piece of advice would be push back your diary kill off 50 percent of what you're trying to achieve um delegate don't abdicate delegate um but get to a place where you are prioritizing prayer the presence of god and allowing god's imagination to, to flow through you and the rest is easy you know you can you, you don't have to invent everything from scratch. Right. Um, there's no copyright in the kingdom of God, you know, in the sense that if you come up with a great idea, you know, and I steal it, that's, I'm just being obedient. Spirit's yeah. doing something. Same with Alpha. Like, you know, people have tried over the years to reinvent Alpha. Nikki Gumbel's tried to reinvent Alpha. The fact is we haven't found anything better that works. Right. If we do, we drop it. But, you know, so I think allowing ourselves to dream and imagine, um, and I think that's a faith thing, you know. I think it's a spiritual gift. Um, I think it comes with, you know, the the apostolic is is allowing. And, and by the way, I believe every one of you listening to this has the ability to move in the apostolic. Yeah. Um, I think that that's one of the things the spirit. You know, you're not categorized; you're empowered by the spirit. Right. Um, so when we function in the apostolic, what we're actually doing is allowing ourselves to see through the wall, and you know, you know, see around the corner and see through the barrier. So I just encourage you, you know, to dream, dare, uh, be brave, um, have big faith. You don't, you don't need a lot of faith. And then pray like crazy. And the dreams that are fruitful, God will bless. And the ones that are bonkers, you know, who knows? You know, they may not happen. For our next guest, we're staying out in the UK. Here's Tim Hughes. Can you tell me a bit about the experience as a leader, as a pastor, of like raising people up knowing that they're probably going to leave your doors and then watching good leaders leave? And yeah, just, it, yeah, like what, tell me about that experience. It's painful. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm so grateful. I mean, I, I was <clears throat> mentored by two amazing men, Mike Pilavachi, who heads up a thing called Sosvara, Nikki Gumbel, used to be an alpha. And they both have had this incredible kingdom posture of you, you give your best away. You give your best away. And, and and I guess serving under them and seeing that happen and then God providing hmm. new people, new you know, that the kind of the deficit is always more than made up by God. And so the first time we planted the church planted a church and you sort of saw a list of names coming through who were thinking about going, you're like, No, you can't, you mustn't, you know, <laughs> oh no, you know, you're one of our givers. Oh you know, no, the worst we need you. And, and, and there's a bit of you that selfishly wants, you know, there's a whole bunch of people you'd very happily let go of. Yeah, I'd be but, great if you guys want to plant a church. Yeah, In fact, I'd encourage yeah. that. 
really think about it. Um, but actually, this is a bit of where faith comes in and generosity. And it's like, actually, God, if we want this church plant to flourish and thrive, and if our vision isn't just about us growing a big church for, let's be honest, the temptation can be, and we disguise it with all these spiritual words, but for our ego to make ourselves feel great and look great. Um, if our real genuine heart is to see the kingdom of God come here in Birmingham, as it is in heaven, you know, here on earth as it is in heaven, then the kingdom mindset is we, we need multiple churches to flourish. And we know that they're mm. going to most likely flourish when godly men and women who've got a call on their lives to lead are released. And so, um, and, and then when you release generosity, much more likely that that church will release generosity. And then you just get this beautiful journey yeah. and story of, of so much life and blessing. And so, and so but it, but, it, it, it is costly. And I, I do think, I think we, we, we've tried to be intentional because I think the danger is, and we talked about this, because we've got a vision to plant many, many churches. So if for our first church plant, you know, 300 of our very best leaders all went, you know, our church would be decimated. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't be able. So, so there is a bit of an intentionality about how can we do this in a way that's sustainable? That means we can plant many churches, but actually it means these churches can really start strong. So the, just practically a way we've done that is when I'm talking, or Rachel and I are talking to the leaders, they're going to plant this church. We'll say, look, you go away, pull together the list of people you would love to invite and ask, and then bring it back and we'll discuss it. And, and, and so you can see, okay, yeah, I, I totally agree with all of these people. Let's go for it. Um, and we try and be intentional about who we kind of ask and encourage to maybe consider it. Now, of course, some people will say, I just know God's been speaking, and you're not going to stand in the way of that. Sure. But I, but I do think as a leader, you want to release church plants to grow and flourish whilst also thinking, how can you keep building what God's doing here so that you can plant more churches over years mm. to come? Here is Dr. Glenn Packham from New Life Church in Colorado. I think there is something that the Lord is doing because it, it, it's not unique to us. There's, we keep discovering other places where they're doing similar things. And I, I think that the, the sacramental or liturgical and the charismatic are like, to use that old expression from the renewal movement days, they're like banks of the same river. You know, they, they, they help us, the move of the spirit. Um, but one has a bit of an ancient um, structure, and the other has this sort of you know expectation of encounter, and I think both are really important. And then the, the second thing I'll say is, I think that what the blend or tension is is going to be different in every context. Um, so some people might be in a context where there is an allergic reaction to anything ancient or liturgical because of the associations that it has. Uh, I've talked to people who, who come, you know, in the Northeast United States, where it's a very Catholic, um, um, uh, negative experiences, let's say, with Catholic Church. They've said, if we try to do that, or if we say the word Eucharist, uh, people are like, oh my gosh, you know, so you do have to discern that contextually and find, you know, roll the dial on what the right uh, blend is. And even for us at our different congregations, five, our five English language congregations, we all do weekly communion, but we don't all do uh, all the other stuff. I would say two or three emphasize the church calendar. Uh, one or two use some liturgical words, ancient words for setting up the communion moment. Um, but but so you have to you know find the right blend. And and there's going to be opposition when we even announced that we were going to do weekly communion. 
people were like, well, don't you think it'll lose its specialness, you know, if we do that every week? Well, there's lots of things we do every week that we somehow manage to keep it fresh, you know. So <laughs> so even even helping people not have a negative view of, of uh, the habitual or the ritual and to say that actually habits reinforce our desires and and rituals and rhythms can be a way of bolstering our our heart it's because we desire to encounter the lord um we we do these things and and then another thing i would say is is let the sensibilities of each stream the charismatic and the contemplative bleed on each other so you, you know i've been in some liturgical churches where they do the communion stuff in the liturgy but it's like there's no music and it's just it was just going to get through this and that i understand that that's fine but the, the charismatic in me is like let's put a keyboard pad under that like let's have the worship team playing under that because why wouldn't we come to the table with the expectation that this is a moment of encounter as well not just when we were singing 10 minutes ago not just during the altar call or whatever but also here so let that sensibility kind of bleed on 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 those practices, and then in a similar way, let the what the contemplative liturgical tradition teaches the charismatic is trust that God is at work even when you can't feel it uh, or see it. You know, sometimes as charismatics, we're so uh, judging or gauging things based on the response or the emotions, and all of that is real. Uh, it's just not reliable. It's real, but it's not reliable. So sometimes that's there, sometimes that's not there. And the contemplative tradition says, do it anyway. Show up anyway. Pray the Psalms anyway, you know. Um, and, and that's been good. So, so 10 years along, I, we, we've seen the richness of that. Up next, we have John Thompson from Sanctus Church in Ontario. So when I was in junior high, I had a radical encounter with Jesus and was called into ministry. And I went to my youth pastor and said, where's all the stuff? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, all the stuff. He says, you're junior high. You got to be a little bit more specific. And I said, where's all the miracles and all the cool stuff? And he said to me, appropriately trying to guard my expectations, Jesus is God. You're not God. You need to change your expectations for what's, what's going to happen. And I went, okay, I appreciate that. As I started walking through the scriptures a lot more, I realized his pastoral intent was right, but his theological presupposition was wrong. Mm -hmm. And so what we started, I started asking myself the question, expectations kill marriages, expectations kill churches. And lots of people over-preach or under-preach, and I I had no time for either. So I asked myself the question, in a post-Christian, hostile culture, where is there guaranteed power to do ministry from, even if there's no money, everyone sucks, and we're not sure what to do next? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that's the real question. If we had no money, like, how do we do this? And then I started reading John and, you know, Jesus is in John five nineteen. the son can do nothing by himself. He can only see what his father's doing. And I was like, I don't get that. I'm a hardcore Trinitarian. Of course, Jesus knows what the father and what, like, that makes sense. And then Jesus, of course, in John 14, 12 says, and oh, by the way, the same things I'm doing, you'll do too. And I looked at my church and said, I don't believe that. And I know people say, oh, that means the apostles. No, it doesn't. Read the context. Be honest. Anyone who believes in me. So I was like, okay, so how do I pair the second person of the Trinity, who's always forever been worshipped, the immutability of God, God never changes, with this idea that Jesus somehow had to listen to his dad while he was down here. So 
what I did is I began to work out Philippians 2. So I all call this upstairs and downstairs. Philippians 2, you know, that great hymn that says that Jesus takes on human flesh. And, and, and I expound this where, you know, Paul uses all this shocking language in there that he is equal to the Father, which means he is God, which means you're declaring this, this Nazarene is the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, and yet he chose not to grasp to his divinity. And what you begin to see there is Jesus, though he remains God, the second person of the Trinity, never loses anything, chooses not to access his divinity. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the song says it how? Well, he takes on human flesh and he dies a, a terrible death and then he's exalted. But the question I asked was, between Christmas and Easter, how did he not access his divinity? And so when I read Jesus's baptism, I was like, oh my goodness, why did the Holy Spirit have to come on Jesus? Why is the third person of the Trinity landing on the second person of the Trinity? They're like, He's already got everything he needs. And then I was like, oh my goodness, Jesus is not just our Savior and Lord, he's our model. Mm-hmm. He chose not to access his divinity, even though he remained divine, so he could model for us what a normal Christian life is. So then I had to ask the question, well... Jesus seems to be listening to the Father and doesn't know what's going on next. Jesus says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. I'm like, how do you not know that? You're God. And Jesus doesn't do any ministry till after he's 30. No miracles, no new teaching. Right when the Holy Spirit lands on him, suddenly he's doing all this stuff. And it says in Luke 3, Luke 4, the book of Acts, Jesus was led by the Spirit, forced by the Spirit, kicked by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And I'm like, what is, I, I read all the books on the, what is going, and I went, oh my goodness. Jesus is modeling what a normal Christian life looks like. And then I got it. Oh, I can be like Jesus, even though I'm not God. Because Mm -hmm. Jesus used spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts. So Jesus had the gift of teaching. And Jesus had the gift of miracles. And so when Jesus was casting out demons, he didn't do it out of his divinity. He did it out of the gift of miracles by the power of the Spirit to model what the church would look like. Which means when Jesus says in John You'll do the same things I've been doing, not you, Jason Ballard, you, the people. And so then when you get to Paul, you suddenly go, oh my goodness, we're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We have the same spirit. We have access to the same character and the gifts of the spirit, which are distributed sovereignly. It's not a buffet. You get to choose. He gets, you get to, he says what you get. Suddenly we get to be like Jesus that way. And everything, suddenly the expectations changed in our church. Renewal broke out because people started finding out their gifts, using their gifts, and realized though, though Jesus was God, we still could imitate him. Because mm-hmm. most of us grew up in church and said, oh, uh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I'm supposed to be like him, but I can never really be like him. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. In the same power. And so what we've hap- happened here is renewal broke out when people started, we identified gifts, we defined the gifts. We started training the S, we empowered people in the gifts, and we started mutually submitting to each other. Here we have our favorite moment with Alex Seeley of The Belonging Co. And in fact, you were at that conference last September, but what you didn't see is the day of rehearsal before the day before the night, opening night, I had every musician and singer in a room because I felt the Holy Spirit take me to Malachi and say some of them are bringing tainted, lame sacrifices to the altar and we wow. will not have that. And there was sin in the camp and there were issues of the heart. And I said, we will not allow you to be on that stage this week until we purify and bring to the Father the sacrifice and the uh, the worship that he deserves. And everyone was prostrate on the floor in the hidden dealing with their crap, 
And therefore, what you got to experience was the mm. overflow of pure hands and clean hearts. And I was ready to scrap the lot of them. <laughs> I was like, guys, we don't play with the presence of God. We are under grace in the new covenant. But if you brought what you have inside of you in the Old Testament, you'd be struck dead in the Holy of Holies. So don't ever take it for granted. Let's clean our hearts. And it takes a leader that consents and discern, but isn't going to overlook and go there. Mm. Truth in love, true discipleship is, hey, like Jesus, he would always go, ah, I don't like that attitude. Ah, where's your faith? But then he would bring them up. So there's mm. truth in love, but there's a taking them to something that then produces this beautiful, pure sound of worship. And I think it's very necessary in the church. Coming up is a familiar voice on the podcast, Brent Ingersoll of King's Church. And that's something the Lord's put put hit on my heart, even in this season. We've got, um, we have three people right now where we're actually, on, that are on our staff, we're paying full time, uh, that basically we're removed from ministry from other churches that we're, we're doing restoration process with and like just to try to you know, and I just feel like that's the heart of God. And one of the things, you know, we talk about what God's saying in this season. One of the things I've, I'm just convinced of is not only as, as individuals, but as pastors and churches, I feel like God wants the church to just learn how to deal with sin and not, not like punt it and not like, you know, in the past, I feel like there's always been this just like, eh, when someone, you know, fails like as if as if we're not all human and we're all you know and so we've actually felt the lord just just really put that on us as like church fathers here at king's like we have to get into the mess of this and we don't even know what it looks like all the way but we're just going to start paying the price of being a re restorative especially with pastors um, that seemed to be like we, the church hasn't been good at that. And we didn't do it that well with uh, our former pastor, like at the time. And I've since even apologized or even owned, you know, um, I was 29 hanging on by a thread. And I just, you know, part of our restoration was like, I wish I could have done that differently. I wish I knew what I didn't know at the time. I wish I could have been a source of strength for you for whatever reason. Um, it didn't track that way. Uh, but you know, I've learned from that at this season of my life to have a bit of a different, uh, different heart for people who are going through that and to see God bring restoration. So we're coming back to Vancouver for our favorite moment with Ken Shigematsu, pastor of 10th Church. What's at stake for the Christian leader right now who is doing the work but if they're honest, they feel a bit disconnected from God and they're tired, but they don't know how to slow down. They wouldn't even know how to slow down the schedule and the thinking and be still. Like, and the reason why I ask what's at stake because because it happens so, it's so common. It's like the, de the, uh, the default setting is just tons of activity. And I'm just beginning to wonder what happens if there's a generation of pastors in Canada who are doing the work, but not doing it from a deep connection with Jesus and that slowed down place. And I just feel like there might be some real things at stake, some ripple out effects that we might have not considered. And I wonder what you feel like is at stake uh, for young leaders feeling that way. 
Yeah, I, I think that um, everything is at stake. That that, and again, it may sound really simple, but you know, we I'm speaking to pastors now and those in some kind of vocational ministry or even a Christian business person. You know, we are in a character work and our first and foremost call is to know Jesus and to inhabit his life and invite him to inhabit us and out of that to offer something to the world. And we can get confused. If I can go back to California for a moment, um, you know, the church that I was involved in planting was taking off and I had um, a friend uh, in my life who was discouraging me from going back to Canada. He said, um, it rains a lot in Vancouver for one. The weather is better here in Southern California, which is true. true. And he said, you know, I hear that um, people are very resistant to, to Christianity in Vancouver. So you're, you'll never be a success, seen as a successful pastor if you go to Vancouver. That'll never happen for you. If you stay in Southern California, at least you have a chance. And uh, despite all of my ambitions as a young man, as a young pastor, I really felt even back then that true success wasn't being part of something big or being well-known, but it was simply doing what was in God's heart and mind. And uh, I think that we've got to resist the temptation to measure success by the size of our ministry or how well we're known. You know, I'm preaching through Jeremiah right now, who was in a kind of uh, non-COVID exile, or his people were, and he wasn't very successful by worldly standards. No one converted, no big revival broke out, no spiritual awakening. And yet he doggedly did what was in the heart of God. And so in God's eyes, he was hugely successful and he had an enduring impact. I mean, in 2020, we're studying his, his writings in a way that he couldn't have imagined in the year 600 mm. BC. So um, I think if we're faithful to what we're called to be and do, that we'll have an enduring, maybe difficult, but, but also um, ultimately fruit-bearing and, and peace-filled ministry. From all the way out in Melbourne, Australia, here's Mark Sayers. Last night, I came here to the office at 10 p.m. when it was cold, drove through the deserted streets. Um, and I came here because someone had left the temporary toilets open because we've got some builders removing asbestos. And I came to shut it up and to make sure no one broke in and took our live stream equipment. Because I'm in Australia, and I think this is a gift to in Canada, there's an element where we still do stuff like that. <laughs> you can't take yourself too seriously when you're coming to lock up the toilets at 10 o'clock at night. So I just don't take myself serious. Like I've got some okay things to say, but at the end of the day, all of it doesn't matter one jot compared to what God can do in a second. I've talked hmm. to people endlessly and endlessly. I can give you all the information. I can tell people five different versions of how we got to this post-Christian moment. I can tell you all this different stuff and I can recite random things because my brain's just a bit weird that I can remember that stuff. But at the end of the day, I've realized, I've seen people who have absolutely messed up the intellectual side of it or given a brilliant intellectual side of it and then the Holy Spirit changes them. Yeah. So... My abilities are so pathetic and nothing compared to what the Holy Spirit can do. They're just simply the, the fork. God is the meal. And, mm. you know, I, I just, you know, I, and, I, and I have lots of, you know, guys, oh, how do I think like you? Whatever. Like, don't, don't be like me. 
cultural moment was just one particular thing that God did a particular time for people. But at the end of the day, I got to the point of this where I realized that none of this matters. I'm sick of smarts for smarts sake. More smarts, mm. more articles, more podcasts, more information is not going to do it. The only thing that's ever done it, the only thing that will do it is the power of God coming when people are humble and get to the end of themselves. Here we have Matt Menzel of Westside Church in Vancouver. You know, and it really comes down to the fact that the spirit of Jesus opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. That's really what it comes down to. So, so you actually never need to jockey for position in his church ever, hmm. ever, ever. So six months after I, I told you I, I prayed and fasted when Norm asked me to stay on and, and all of that, and I let go of church planting. Six months after that, I went through a massive personal crisis. I remember I was out for a run in East Van where we were living at the time. And I was just angry. I was angry at God. I was angry at myself. I was just angry. I was, and it, everything was good. I just felt like I didn't know who I was because I had set out to plant a church, which meant I, I was preparing to lead, you know, and preparing to step out and, and be the vision caster and, and do these things. And, and now I'm not. And, mm. and that just became really clear and it was it that's the role like if you're not if you're not in that if you're not if you're not in that position if the lord hasn't raised you up to that position to lead and you're, you're that you're in that second chair that that's not your role your role is not to step out and, and and do things you're not called to do and so i went through a massive personal crisis and and the lord got hold of me on that run and and um and he he said something to me that that carried me through the next six years and and um and would have carried me through another six had he not did had he not done what he did two years ago and and um, he said to me that my job was to be for Norm what I would want somebody to be for me if I was in Norm's position hmm. that was it and when he said that to me on that run because remember I stopped I stopped running and I just listened as as I as I felt that impressed on me and that was. It was like I was given a commission by him. It was like I was I was giving I was given my orders. I was given like here's what you're going to do. Here's what I'm calling you to and that's all that I needed. Like mm. like that's all the, and so I and I began to be able to have joy now. Like now there was a whole shift for me because I realized my, I have a job that only I can do. There's nobody else that can right. do this job. Huh. There's nobody else that can be for him what what I can be for him. And so I, I started to just, I leaned into that with everything I had. And I'm telling you, man, I had six, like those years were the most, were so fun. Were so fun. Are they easy? No, ministry is always hard, but, but they're so, so fun. And, and the relationship that Norm and I have now and will have into the future is a product of like of the two of us. And I mean, it's amazing when you're working for such a, a humble leader as well, but but that for me was you you need if you're in that second chair i mean i read books like leading from the second chair and things like that which were great and talk about the paradox of that leadership role and th those are those are that's helpful and good but but really for me it came down to i had to know i was called by jesus to that role and then if i knew that i could let go i could i could stop all the you know everything else all all the anxiety and all the jockeying for position all this all the what does this mean for my future it's all gone you let it all go when you know that he's called you to it and so and for any guy in that position who's struggling i would say you got to go to the lord for that you got to ask him for it because if you start to if you start to step out of your lane if you if you start to step out of your lane, 
you you will destroy something you will break something you, mm. you really will and and there's a really good chance that in that moment it's it's pride and it's arrogance is driving you you see something but if the lord wanted you to implement that thing he would have put you in the position to implement it and he hasn't so you, you have to let that go mm. and you have to do your best to serve the people and remember that none of this belongs to you and and if you try to step out when it's not time um you you will you will break something and you'll you'll probably end up where you don't want to be. But if you let go and surrender to him and let him give you that joy and just wait on him, like I told you when we walk in the spirit, that waiting is perpetual. If you'll do that, then he will exalt you at the proper time, whatever that looks like. That I, that looks like a million different things, right? But, but he'll do it. Hmm. Yeah, he'll do it. Coming up is John Tyson of Church of the City, New York. Tell us a bit about the Primal Path journey and the resource and what that's looked like with you and your son. Yeah, so let me just explain what the Primal Path is. The Primal Path was basically something I developed for my son to help him walk from adolescence into manhood. I realized that um, there was just a, a broken process of forming good men in the world. Every other culture seemed to happen, whether it was, you know, Messiah warriors, um, First Nation peoples, you know, a vision quest, a, a rite of passage of pathway, the bar mitzvah. And I realized, like, we have nothing. What do we have? How is a typical young person formed in church today? It's like a little bit of Bible content, a retreat. How is a young, young man formed in society? It's basically Pornhub, um, Sparknotes, Fortnite. These, this is what forms our young men. And I basically realized I need to go back and figure out how other cultures formed young men. And so I basically did a ton of reading and then um, built, built it over six years. And so I designed a thing that's basically the primal park, intentional fathers raising sons of consequence. And it's designed to help walk basically a 13 year old into an open. And uh, so I, I built a course of about 14 exercises that you go through to build this for your son. So I want to be clear. It's like, I'm not going to disciple your son. It's, it's not a book. It is like a course for you to design this for your son based on mm. who he is. So it's, it's partly timeless principles of manhood combined with an audit and understanding of who your son is and designing around that. So, yeah, so for my son, it looked like um, a daily time of uh, connection and formation study and then um, a weekly man night where we got together for man school. And, um, and then, yeah, these d various challenges. And uh, it was really quite extraordinary. It, it ended with us, uh, him doing the gap year and then us hiking 500 miles across the, uh, Spain doing the Camino de Santiago to process the whole journey and to debrief his gap year. And then mm. him, it started running off the coast of New York uh, out into the water as a baptism manhood. And it ended by him running off the coast of Spain at the end of the world at Finisterre, uh, being baptized into being baptized into manhood for the blessing ceremony. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's built with four pillars. It's a preparation dealing with your own crap so that you are aware of your own drama and that you pass on blessing rather than brokenness. Then it's initiation. It's how to design something that brings him into a liminal space where he has an awareness that he's now being formed and he's moving from one state to another. 
um, formation, which is the actual process of doing that. So I've got a whole ton of stuff on how to form a young man. And then recognition, it's honouring and inviting him into the community of formed men with a cause bigger than themselves and a mission for others. So that's that's basically what it is. It's at primalpark.co. Hmm. Is, uh, where it's found but yeah i basically tried to design something that dads could do themselves and it's hard work man, i'm telling you you can't yeah. wing it you can't wing raising a son so hmm. that was basically some of the vision behind it and it says uh, you know the end of malachi man it's turning the hearts of the fathers to the sons it's all that stuff you know oh, my son's here let him talk may share a couple of thoughts with uh, the church leaders of canada um it's made me i'd say way more confident in myself um, and, hmm. and just having that that foundation of knowledge that that so into me made it made it way easier for me to not only like ask questions but kind of figure out which questions were the right ones to ask because that's because it's not really a lot of answers but just kind of trying to forge the way forward was was made way easier um, and I mean I think dad and I are way closer because it was just yeah there was always something for us to like touch base on and be like oh I'm struggling with this and so dad could dad could step in and be like okay this is what I dealt through like personal experience be able to pour out of knowledge and wisdom into me and so that made it very helpful and actually easier to turn to him than to like step away because then I just kind of flounder if I was if I wasn't asking him for help. And so it made it way more crucial for me to kind of depend on him and hmm. as he like poured all that knowledge into. I love that. Sweet man, and there you go. Oh, yes. You're you're amazing, Nate. Can I ask you a question, bro? While I got you here. Yeah. Um, have you have you done the the imaginary work of being like, man, will I do that with my son one day? Oh, 100% I plan on doing it with my son. Like, the, before I even finish the private path, I was like, I'm going to do that with my, with my sons. So, you don't have a son coming anytime soon, do you? No, no, nowhere close. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy. Well, thanks for jumping on, man. That's really fun, and it's good to meet you. Here's our favorite moment with Mike Miller from Nova Scotia. The premise is the most challenging things in life are usually the most difficult, are also the most rewarding. Mm. And something started to grow inside of me. And in prayer time, I heard God say this because my 30s were breathtaking. Uh, I really enjoyed my my 30s. I really felt um, we had seen like the start of my family. So ministry wise, relationally. And I heard God say, do you want to spend your 40s telling stories from your 30s or do you want more stories? Wow, and in, and in a deep place, I really felt like it was God, almost like a Solomon moment going, what do you want? And I said, I want more stories. Come on, we've all seen these people that tell the stories from 30 years ago, you know, just like their books, their books, their, their bio picture is from 30 years ago. And I, I'm like, you see them in person, you're thinking, is that the same person? I don't want, I thought, I thought, I don't want to tell stories from my 20s and 30s as I go into my 40s and 50s. So all this started happening. At the same time, there was a real disconnection where I was and just realizing that the vision wasn't the same. Again, great local vision. I just felt like I was speaking a different language. I didn't feel like it was for us and we really couldn't celebrate it or really invest in it. And that's not fair to where we were. So, no, we had no plan. So I quit with the thought I was going to do landscaping. And uh, because for me, ministry uh, pastoring isn't like applying for a job just for a paycheck. There's nothing wrong with applying for jobs for ministry, but for me, it was out of a relationship, more like a marriage. And I thought, until I find that relationship, that covenant, that, that, that community, I'll just provide for my family. So my wife is more spiritual than me. She, she was actually standing over me, preaching at me one morning at six in the morning. I was still in bed. 
And she's like, you will not do landscaping. You are not putting work boots on. You are called to preach and build the church. And she started re-preaching a Stephen Furtick sermon to me in bed. (laughs) And and, uh, God started opening doors for me to travel full-time. And you know, and those in Canada uh, know the context. We can probably name five to 15 people that travel globally or at least in the States. But in Canada, people that travel full-time and that's their income – you know, on one hand with four yeah. fingers left over, there's, there's, there's one, not two, there's not many. I don't, you, you have a very rich, um, different circles that you travel in. In my circle, I couldn't really name anybody. And especially from East coast Canada. Uh, and by no means do I think I am the best preacher or best suited. So, but God started opening doors. It was divine. Mm. And for two years started traveling full time, preaching from, you know, retreats to conferences and everything in between. And in that journey, we were still attending the church that I had resigned from, again, to to maintain unity there. Plus, my kids needed a church and my wife and trying to make sure we were doing things well. And I felt like I had this this great seed in my pocket of an oak tree. And every every time I landed in an airport, I thought, is this my home city now? Hmm. I I kept looking for a place to plant that seed. And I'd land in London, Ontario. I'd land in Toronto. I'd land in Vancouver. I'd land in Victoria. I'd land in uh, Oklahoma. I'd land in New York. I'm like, is this my city? And I never felt that peace. And we were looking for a place, a culture, a, a, a tribe. And then after about a year and a half, it started to shift. And I heard God say, if you can't find your tribe, maybe it means because I want you to build your tribe. And the turning moment for me, I was landing in Baltimore, Maryland. It was in January 2016, and I was um, I was uh, preaching at a, a big youth conference, and I heard God say, literally the sound of a door. It wasn't audible, but it was spiritual. A door started opening. I could hear this door, and God saying, it's a new season. Mm. And after that, things started happening very quickly. started getting a vision for Nova Church, um, even a name. Nova is Latin for new. Nova Scotia is new Scotland. Nova is new we believe God makes all things new and new opportunities and new community. And it started birthing that way. So um, that's the long story. But it started in the middle of a season of we didn't know what was next. Second to last, we have Matt Tapley from Lake Mount Worship Center. When I was in grade nine, I worked at Home Hardware, Home of the Handyman. And uh, one of my jobs was to cut keys. And... You know, so if you know anything about that, you take a key and you put it, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a, a guide on one side and then the blade on the other. And you put the blank toward the blade and you put the original key toward the guide and you just push the, the key cutter over the guide and it pushes that onto the, on the blank and you have this, you know, a newly cut key. What I learned was if somebody brings me a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, eventually, although it looks the same, all the same ridges and grooves and, and it's the right blank, it won't work hmm. because there are microscopic differences over time when it's copied and copied and copied and copied that it can't turn the lock because it's, it's, it doesn't have enough proximity to the original. And I would encourage a room full of young pastors, get proximity to the original. Look at a New Testament church and don't justify reasons. Don't justify reasons to be unlike that. Look at the book of Acts and don't, don't, 
Don't chart that back as interesting, cool history that's back there to just make us excited about what God did, but actually believe for that now. Look at how Paul challenged, particularly my my personal theology. I think what Paul outlined um, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14, 15, that strong local church theology where the gifts of the Spirit are in operation— uh, you know, Paul goes so far as to say, how is it that when you come together, someone's got a message, someone's got some songs picked out, there's a prophetic word, there's some gifts of healing and all that. And the rhetorical question is, it's because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I would say to a room full of young leaders, <laughs> how is it when you come together, if those things aren't there, ask that question. Because Paul was saying, how is it that happens? And he was saying, it's because the Holy Spirit's there. If those things aren't happening, That should put us to our knees. What we need is to have a church that looks like like the original, Mm -hmm. cut as close as we can get to the copy, where we're finding ways to have expression of Holy Spirit activity in life in a body of believers, not a performance from the front, not just smoke and lights, not just all that, but how do we have a local church that invites the ministry of the body in the power of the Holy Spirit, in ways that don't have to be, you know, charismania, weird, whatever, but also embrace the divine. Because I, I think the, the challenge for today is we're leaving the supernatural out there. We're leaving. People are having supernatural encounter. They're having supernatural experiences. They're just not having them at church. And the house of God is where the authentic uh, supernatural encounter with the God of the universe, he wants to speak. He wants to heal. He wants to meet needs. His presence, he he wants people to feel him, not just believe in him. God moves still in ways. And so I would say to young leaders, Cut a template from the original key, and and put that into the lock of Canada and watch it watch watch it pop open. Watch what God wants to do. That in the last days He is pouring out His Spirit. Look for that. Look for God activity, not just what we can do for God, but what God wants to do in partnership with us. Now to close off the best of 2020, we're going back to Mark Sayers with his prayer for Canada. Father, I want to thank you for everyone listening. I want to thank you particularly at this time for Canada, for the role that you have shaped for her. Father, I think of in the way in scriptures that you talk about individuals, but you also talk about nations. And Father, I want to pray that you expand Canada's horizon. Expand her vision, expand the church's sense of who they are. I just, I guess I want to prophetically ask them and call them to step out of the shadow, to actually step into the light. Father, I want to pray against, um, I guess, something which is perhaps more over-quietness, a fear of stepping forward. Father, at this moment, show leaders across Canada how to lead, but lead in a Christ-centered way that is also truly Canadian. Father, I know that you've been preparing a whole cohort of humble leaders for the next thing you want to do. Anyone who's listening who's felt that they've been ignored, they're in a silent, quiet place, that everything that they've been doing has been in vain. Father, at this moment, lead them. May may they just step, as we said, in in the two footsteps in front of them at this moment, in your footsteps as you lead us. 
Father, I want to pray for a sense of unity over Canada as that regionalism and what can be learned from that can sometimes be fractionalism and fragmentation. Um, yeah, I want to pray for her leaders, for the prime minister, for the provincial leaders. Um, I do actually just even want to thank you, Father, for um, we don't often think about the Queen, but even just her uh, messages that she sent to both our respective countries that Australia and Canada needs to turn to prayer during COVID-19. We accept that invitation. And we pray, Father, that she may lead um, the, us, as, us as strange constitutional monarchies into a greater understanding of you, Father. And so at this moment, may in the midst of this, as people hurt, as people suffer, as we fear about the economy, about the social impact, the medical impact, in the midst of this, turn all things to good. Give us a gift. We want to receive it, Jesus. Empower everyone who's listening. Thank you for these leaders. And we pray, Father, that across Canada, in big cities, in prairies, in small towns, do something new. Let us no longer talk of this as a post-Christian country, but actually a country where the Holy Spirit is active and studying new things and drawing new things. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 I love that so much. That was so fun to hear all those amazing moments and just thankful for guys like Mark willing to pray and invest in us. And uh, we're just so thankful that you tuned in for this final episode of 2020. We hope that it served you and encouraged you as we come to the end of this year. And as a heads up, for the next two weeks, we're going to be taking a break from the podcast. We hope that you're able to find rest and peace in this Christmas season uh, with those who are inside of your bubble or your family. And we're going to be back again on January 4th to share a conversation that we had with Daryl Johnson. We're so excited for you to hear it. It was an incredible conversation. And we've got an exciting lineup of interviews interviews planned already for 2021. Let me just share a few of the names we're going to be hearing from. Tim Mackey of The Bible Project, Julie Davidson, Mike Pilavachi, Guy Mason, Damian and Julie Bassett, Father Simon, Phil Can, Miles Tolman from Malaysia, Mark Buchanan, and so many more. I've loved these conversations and I can't wait to share them with you. That's all that we have for you today and for this year. Thanks again for being with us. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2021.